patterns, permutations, time, rhythm, coordination, meter, concentration, tempo, modulation, groove. Welcome to the Drum Mantra Podcast. This is Rich Stitzel, and it's time to go deeper with your practice. So what I what I did is, you know, at some point I started realizing like I can put in these, you know, these sextuplets and make it sound essentially kind of faster than it is. Before I set up anything in a session, I try to find out, hey, what's the first song we're going to do? Can we go listen to it? Is there some kind of demo? And then, because I hate, I hate just like throwing out like any old cymbals and snare drum and whatever, um, building a kit and then going to listen to the song and go like, oh, well, I wouldn't use half the stuff that's up here. The way to be successful is something you have to be so passionate about it that time disappears. everybody, welcome back to the Drum Mantra Podcast. This is Rich Stitzel, and I'm happy to be here talking to you. I'd just like to say thank you to everybody who's been listening to the podcast lately. The numbers have like jumped exponentially with the downloads, the amount of people listening, and it's kind of freaking me out. But um, it's humbling, and I really appreciate your time and attention, and I hope that... Um, I hope I'm answering some questions or saying some things that are inspiring you. And actually, that's sort of what I wanted to talk about today is um, just the idea of inspiration and the idea of um, um, how each person is able to kind of be an inspiration to others. And so this is something that each one of us, I think, deals with in life. Um, I think it, you know, maybe it comes down to the idea of like, and in, in being insecure, uh, you know, I think everybody has an insecurity somewhere or another, and usually it has to do with being accepted is what my experience has been. And especially in the music world, in the world of art, where everything has to do with, um, well, I guess it's true with, with any any career or, or interest or passion, is um, the fear of being not accepted. Because, uh, you know, if, if you're not accepted in the music world because of your playing, then that means that you the gigs aren't going to happen. Or, uh, you know, if you do something weird on a recording session and it, it wasn't happening, you may never get called back. So, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and tell a story because I have an experience from when I was 16 years old. This was a very long time ago. Um, I was in a band. The first the first ten years of my music career, I was in original bands only. I played in all bands that the band would get together and write songs as a band, and uh, make flyers as a band, and go out and put the flyers on light poles and and on cars and staple them up everywhere as a band. And you were only in one band. 
um, that was your band, that was your tribe, and people came to see your band, and uh, it was a very magical time. It's it's pretty crazy. I've been a professional musician, a full-time professional musician since 1991. Um, however, the f- from 91 until 2001, for that decade, all of my professional musician-ness came from being in two original bands. Well, I, I was in a few different original bands, but all original bands. And these original bands were uh, successful enough that, um, gosh, one of the bands we were all in, it was a trio, the Brad Thompson and the Undulating Band. That band did so well that we all, you know, were able to, we all bought houses and, you know, had had good livings playing original music that we wrote. Well, Brad Brad wrote most of the music as, you know, as a group and then we would we would fix the music, uh, you know, change the arrangements or create arrangements or whatever. But the point is the that bond of being in a band is so different than the the next part of my career from 2001 until now, 2018. Um, in 2001 I moved from Texas to Chicago and in Chicago it's a little bit different scene. I mean, there is an original music scene, but I quickly realized that there was no way that I was going to be able to jump into an original scene and maintain the kind of uh, living or lifestyle that I had when I was in Texas, especially because the cost of living was you know, higher in Chicago than, than Fort Worth, Texas. And um, luckily, uh, everyone in in that last band that I was in, I was in two bands in Texas at the end of, of my Texas time, which was Brad Thompson and the Undulating Band, which Brad was the leader. Aiden Bubeck was the bass player. I was a drummer. It was a trio. Sometimes it was a quartet. We had a few different guitar players. We had Don Sinto for a while, and uh, and we had Kevin Grove for a while. But um, it was essentially a trio. And then I had another band called Bertha Coolidge, which was an original jazz group. So we had our trio, which had singing. It was kind of a pop, we called it acoustic groove trio. And it was, we all sang and uh, they were pop songs that were original. And then Bertha Coolidge was all original jazz, uh, kind of what we, we called it Texas garage jazz. It was kind of the Texas grooves uh, instrumental music. And that was um, a quartet, Paul Metzger on guitar, Joey Carter on vibes, an organ, Aiden Bubeck on bass, and then I was on drums again. Um, so both of those bands were the, you know, between those two bands, I was playing five nights a week in Fort Worth and and making a good living. And the idea of creating your own music and making a living is completely different than being a hired gun. And when I moved to Chicago, I had to become a hired gun because uh, of what I said. The the original scene, getting into an original scene quick enough and building something was just not really in the cards. I had a I had a brand new newborn at the time and and uh, needed to kind of maintain a certain level of of lifestyle. And uh, luckily, I was trained. Everyone that I played with in Texas was, you know, trained in music, so we could all read, and um, we all knew how to play different styles of music because we we studied. And um, it came into play when I moved to Chicago. When I lived in Texas, I had never played a cover song at all. 
except for maybe jazz standards. And and then when I moved to Chicago, I realized that the scene here for what I was needing to do required me to play a lot of different kinds of music, a lot of different styles, a lot of different songs, backing up different singers who were bringing in, you know, their catalog of of pop songs. And um, so I started having to use my sideman hired gun hat to be prepared to play any kind of music for any kind of uh, artist. And it was very quick for me to get into the scene and and kind of grow up through the uh through the ranks uh, in in the Chicago music scene because I was able to read and because I was prepared but it wasn't all just a gravy train easy road because the the players in Chicago you know I'm I'm playing with a diff- it's a different it's a totally different world in Chicago than in Texas and especially when you're going from all original music to musicians who are trained to be able to read anything, trained to be able to play anything. Um, and although the guys in Texas could do that, we never really had to because we were having success with our original projects. So um, anyway, I was I was greatly challenged. I mean, every every musician I heard in Chicago freaked me out. Like, oh my God, these people are ridiculous they're so good at what they're doing getting sounds having chops being able to read meticulous uh, detail to their playing and it was extremely intimidating to me and I I needed to use I, I realized I knew that I had to step out of my comfort zone and become a different kind of player if I was going to survive in in this new this new scene, you know, every city has a has a different kind of scene. Um, where all the kind of the 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 heaviest, well, you know, every every city has a scene, has several scenes, and there's there's scenes for each level of musician. Um, the the levels of musician in Chicago that are kind of at the the top of the top of the heap as far as you know working and and being hired to do kind of the legit work like you know the Broadway shows or um, kind of the high level um, artists backing up high level artists were all incredible musicians highly trained and very serious and uh, I had to kind of step it up and and uh, do it quick so I'm grateful for uh, my formal studies I've always had I, I had teachers my entire life from seventh grade through college and, um, you know, it was hired to do jingle sessions in Texas and stuff. So I was reading and, and doing some high pressure gigs in Texas, but it, it never was to the, to the degree that it is here. So, um, I had to deal with some insecurities. I think that's what I was talking about first. The idea of, um, you know, what if I'm not good enough? What if I do something wrong and it totally falls apart? Oh, I know what I was going to talk about. Let me I'm going to back up because I want to I was going to talk about, wow, I really got off on a tangent. I was going to talk about when I was 16 and a recording session experience, my very first recording session experience. All right, so I'm 16 years old. I'm in my very first original band. It was called Yawn. It was Y O with a umlaut over it and N, Y O N. 
It was uh, five keyboard players, and I played drums, a combination of electronic drums and acoustic drums. And uh, this was 1985, so bands like The Cure and Depeche Mode and all these kind of early 80s techno bands were on the uh, on the scene so that's what this band was like everyone's hair was cut like Tony Hawk and Robert Smith and we played <clears throat> what we called technical dance music which was keyboard oriented no one knew what they were doing everyone was just kind of coming up with a one finger part on their keyboard and playing eighth notes and and then uh, having some moody singing on top anyway so somehow this band which I don't know. We had a 45, actually did a record. Um, and I wasn't ever sure if it was very good, but I had a, my lens was a little bit different than everybody else's because like, like you've probably know now that I grew up in a family of professional musicians, professional jazz musicians. So I kind of had a different gauge on what quality was with musicianship and stuff, but I was having fun and it was my first band. And, uh, it was. It's a culture. It's not just about playing the music. It's the culture of what you what you build. Who who comes to see you play, and and just the culture that you build around that band. So somehow, all of a sudden, some guys showed up to one of our rehearsals, and we rehearsed at this one of the singer's house. and And I think the mom of the singer knew these people or something. But these guys were twins. They were. Uh, I can't remember their names, and I don't even remember their profession. But their claim to fame is, is what they say is they were co-writers on I I want to say I want to say Boot Scoot and Boogie, which is a I think that's a Brooks and Dunn song. I can't remember the details, but these two guys showed up and they had written or co-written kind of a hit with with a country artist and they were there to check out the band to possibly do some kind of management thing or something. I don't remember, but, um, so we, we did our, uh, we did a little performance in the living room for them. And after we finished, they said, okay, everyone can go, but we want you to stay and told me that they wanted me to stay. So I was like, okay. And so everyone left and everyone in the band was kind of kind of freaked out a little bit that they all were leaving and I was not leaving and after they left they sat me down and said we want you to um play drums on a on a recording that we have coming up on a recording session for this this tune um that we're pitching to whoever or whatever so i was like okay awesome this is great thinking that i was you know that i had made it but I also had this this kind of issue with the fact that it wasn't the band; it was just me. This was the first time that you know my band and and I felt like it was a, a family, and I was being taken out of it to do work without them, and that was a very strange thing to kind of deal with. Now keep in mind that I didn't even start playing drums until the summer before eighth grade, and so I was fourteen, and now. I'm I don't even think I'm 16. I think I'm still getting rides to rehearsal. So, I've only been playing drums 
for a year and a half. <laughs> but I had a teacher and I was, you know, serious. I practiced and stuff. So I guess I was good enough for these guys to think I could do a recording session. Okay. So plans are made. Um, recording session date is set. And uh, let me think. Yeah, I guess I could drive because I drove. I would. Oh, I can't. I can't remember those details. I was either dropped off at the recording studio or they picked me up. I can't remember. Anyway, so I get set up in the studio and it's all adults. You know, I'm 16 years old and everyone else is like in their 40s, which seemed crazy to me. And they talk about the song and we we listen to the song and I get a piece of paper and I start charting it out as best as I can. I'm, I'm kind of freaking out because everyone else is in the, in the room has paper and listening to the, you know, usually you get to a session, you listen to the demo and you make a chart you're on your own a lot of times. So I was scratching out the form of the song, um, as fast as I could, just really paying attention to the intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus, you know, whatever the form was. And, um, talked about the, the, feel and talked about the tempo and this is way before uh this is like before you would actually record to a click track you might just get the tempo but I don't remember there being a click track maybe there was no I don't think there was so it was a shuffle it was like a um it was like a Purdy shuffle kind of vibe I didn't even know who Bernard Purdy was when I was 16 um but I did know what a shuffle was I did know how to play a shuffle even though I'd never heard Bernard Purdy's shuffle, or I don't even know whose shuffle I'd heard, but I knew how to play a shuffle somehow. So it's time to record the tune, count the tune off, we start to play, and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm putting little drum fills in, and, and I have no idea what I'm doing. I mean, I'm, I've literally played drums for a year and a half, so you know, I've got a little Neil Pert in my mind. I ha- I don't know what I have going on in my head, so... It didn't, it didn't sound good. And they're like, oh, let's do another take. And we try another take. And I remember, I remember overhearing the people in the, in the control room kind of wondering before we had played why a 16 year old was in the studio. And I must be some kind of prodigy because, you know, why didn't they hire an adult? And I thought, man, I've got big shoes to fill and, and here we go. This is it. This is the big, this is the biggie. And I totally folded. I folded. We tried it maybe three or four times, and it was not happening. It was not happening so much that they brought me into the control room. They said, we're going to call another person. And I was like, you know, I had to be complete. I had to play it cool. See, my this is the other issue about that experience. My dad at the time was a jingle writer, and he basically lived in recording studios, and, and he was doing jingles all the time. But I was too busy in my own life to sort of pay attention to what his world was. But his drummer at the time was Greg Bissonette, who everyone in the world knows now. He played with, uh, after he left uh, Texas, his first gig was with with um, uh, Dave David Lee Roth. And then, of course, now he's playing with Ringo Starr's All-Star Band. But Greg was one of the drummers that my dad was using in the session work. So it's like all this heavy session stuff's going on in my family. And everyone knows who my dad is. And and I'm I'm like, okay, I'm the next generation. I've got to really show my stuff. 
but I was not ready. And the guy said, we need to bring someone else in. And so I had to play it cool. And I'm like, great. Is it okay if I stay and watch? And I was so sick to my stomach and freaked out. And this other drummer shows up and they said, because we're, you know, we're on the, we're on the clock. We really need this done. Is it okay if he uses your drums? And I said, of course. And this, they called this guy in from North Texas. I think the studio is somewhere near North Texas. So they called this guy in. I don't remember who it was. I wish I did know who it was because I probably actually know that person now in real life. But at the time I was just so, uh, so destroyed that I was scared to even talk to anybody. But he comes in and nails it on the first take and I was I was completely I went into complete depression. Um and I don't remember anything after that much because I was so torn up. And I did I do remember having the thought that this cannot ever happen again. If this, this, I can't, I, I would not be able to handle this, this kind of uh, situation again. So that's kind of something that got me a little bit more serious. Of course, when you're 16, 17, 18, especially back then, being serious is uh, sometimes fall, falls backseat to being in a band and having a following. So, so I, I went back and forth wrestling with being serious and then the beauty of kind of being a rock star um, just locally for years, I, I kept going back and forth, but I think the good thing was I knew that it was important to have your game happening, even if you weren't using it. So I continued to practice and I would practice things that I never would play in my bands ever. And I started to have this realization that, that playing in a band has nothing to do with the material that I practice. And so I can practice out of the Ted Reed syncopation book. And I can practice out of the Wilcoxon solo book. And I can practice the Cerrone solos. And I can practice out of the the Gary Chester book. And I can play along to, you know, Chick Corea's electric band or police tunes. And then, in my other life, go be in my band and play technical dance music with five other keyboard players to a crowd full of teenagers who think we're rock stars. So I had this interesting kind of two sides to my thing, and I knew that the people I was playing with did not have those two dimensions to them. I loved them. They were they were great people, and, and we were friends. But I knew that there wasn't any more depth to what was happening besides what was happening. And that stuck with me from a very early stage. I knew that it was important to have more depth than what you show the public. And obviously that has kind of stuck with me my whole life. I think it's, you know, I, I love the, I love the, I think it's a Zen saying, actually, I think, I think it comes from the, the uh, Tao Te Ching. Uh, the more you know, the less you say. The more people know, the more you know, the less you speak. The more you speak, the less you know. That's kind of the paraphrase of it. And I always kind of thought about that as in music. It's like, I can understand tons about rhythm and time, and I can be well-versed in all kinds of styles, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to whip it out on the gig. That means I, that, means that I can play a gig and, and sound like I have deeper roots because I've studied more than just how to play that song. 
And I think that's a very important concept. Anyway, okay, so I'm going to try to bring this back into focus because I think I was first talking about um, the idea of being intimidated and the idea of inspiration. And I think what this comes down to, I think everyone has a fear of not being accepted and not being good enough for what it is that they're doing. I think that fear can be healthy if it is something that we can step back and be aware that it's that it's happening in our mind. So it's one thing to be wrapped up into complete belief that I'm not going to succeed, I'm not good enough. Uh, that can completely debilitate a person. And I think we all go through that at different times in our lives. If we can step back and realize, oh, I am having the thoughts and feelings of intimidation or I'm not prepared enough or to be able to observe that we're going through that helps us step out of it for a second and say, okay, I can do something about this. Um, the reason I believe that stress and, and these kinds of issues come up in a person and I, and I'm saying myself included is because we're trying to, we're, we're projecting ourselves as something that we are not. So we're trying to be something that we're not. Now, we may be trying to project ourselves into being something that we're not, but we will eventually be. Um, but so often, we compare ourselves to other people. We try not to, you know, it's almost cliche to say, don't compare yourselves, be authentic, just be you. Of course, it's easy to say those things, but to truly live that way is challenging for many people um, because we always want to be better. We want to improve. And I think there's a healthy dose of comparing yourselves to other things because that means that you're driven to improve. You're driven to evolve. The thing that is important is we catch ourselves and, and realize that being driven and wanting to evolve and wanting to improve is the is the essence of what should drive us not man okay i'll just i'm just going to come out and say it uh in in 1991 i went to university of north texas and the first drummer that i saw playing in the zebras was keith carlock and at the time he was playing a double a red double bass tama kit huge kit he sounded just like a combination of weckel and dennis chambers and we were all 19 years old, 20 years old, and he was blowing everybody's mind. Best drummer I'd ever heard. It was freaky. And then just one year later, uh, Keith is in a band called Tin Man, and I'm also in that band playing percussion. So Keith was a person in my life that I was close to because I was in a band, and I would observe him play, and he was... On, as as the entire world knows, he's on another planet, one of the best drummers to ever live, and I was I was kind of in close proximity to him for a couple years, and <clears throat> I just to me he was he was the finest musician that I'd ever heard on drums. His groove, his his creativity, his his solo concepts, his feel, his sound, it was everything about him, and so. For years, he was that person for me. He was that person that I kept trying to compare myself to and trying to, I would always think, man, if I can't play 
this gig like Keith would play it, then then I'm not good enough to play this gig. That kind of stuff would go through my head, and I and I would have to catch myself because I'm like, okay, Keith is Keith, you know, Ari is Ari Honig is Ari Honig, and uh, you know, Dave Weckl is Dave Weckl, and all these things, and I had to keep reminding myself, you are your own person, you have your own creative ideas, you have your own history, you have your own development, you have your own ideas and your own approach, and that's completely legitimate. So stay in that mindset. And then of course it would I'd get into the recording studio and the, my first thing would, that would come to my mind was my I my drums don't sound like Keith's. And I remember being at oh here's another story about being in a recording session. <laughs> um so I'm in a session with my band, with the undulating band, and we're doing a session and the producer is Terry Slimmons. We're in a studio that I had just done a record with uh with a band called uh, Little Elvis Jackson, and Keith was the drummer in that band, and I was playing percussion. Uh, the band that Keith and I were in together before that was called Ten Man, and we did a couple records with that band, and then that band broke up, and then out of that became Little Elvis Jackson. It was a little legal thing with, with the record label, so changed the name of the band. It was pretty much the same players, and so we did a session at the studio. Keith's drum sounded amazing. I loved the studio, so when it was time for the Undulating Band to do their next record, I said we have to do we have to at least track drums at the studio because the you know Ter- Terrence Slimmons was the producer for Little Elvis Jackson record, and he's going to be the producer for the Undulating Band record. So I know that he can get these sounds, and it's killing. So that's where we're going to go. So we go to the we go to the studio, set up the kit. And we literally spend six hours getting drum sounds. It was insane. It was the longest I'd ever spent getting drum sounds. Tuning the drums, changing the mics, changing the, 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 I set the drums up in the exact same direction that Keith's kit was set up in the, in the main room. And, and, and was tuning the drums and trying to play the drums. And, and at one point I said, I said, why don't these drums sound like Keith's drums? And Terrence comes over the intercom, he clicks on, he says, because you're not Keith. And I was like, oh my God, another lesson, crazy. So these, these little, these little things come up. And I think, I think something like that could, could come up and it probably, it it absolutely freaked me out, but it also was the light bulb again. It's like, yeah, you're not Keith. You're not Blair Sinta. You're not Vinnie Caliuta. You're not, you know, you're not Dennis Chambers. You're Rich Stitzel. And you're hired to be on this session because you play the way that is appropriate for the songs that are being recorded right now. And I tell you, that's it's one of the hardest things in the world for me, and I think I think for many drummers, is to be authentically yourself. And that is a key word, authenticity. The only way that we can truly inspire and play from an inspired space is if we are being authentic. And the way to be authentic is to have full confidence and comfort that you are 
creating from a space within yourself that has developed through your honest work on the instrument. In other words, you can't slack off in the practice room and then think that magically you're going to sound amazing on a gig. You can't fake your way through working on something and then get to a recording session and think you're going to nail it like, you know, like some heavy session guy. Being authentic, being honest with yourself. And the honest with yourself isn't... The time to be honest with yourself is not on the gig. And the time to be honest with yourself is not in the recording studio. The time to be honest with yourself, well, first of all, is all the time. But let's start with the practice room. Let's start with the integrity of your focus and attention and discipline to actually working through problems. Now, uh, Keith in Denton, Keith lived with another drummer named Jason Farr, and they lived in a house off campus. And there were a couple occasions where Tin Man rehearsed at Keith's house. And it was the only couple times that I went to Keith's house, so I was able to see his drum set up at his house and to see what he was working on and what he was practicing. And it's the same thing everyone else was practicing, you know, um, sticking exercises and accent coordination patterns and things from the David Garibaldi book and just all the same things that all of us were working on. But you just knew, I just knew that he was working on them with more focus, with more, uh, a deeper level of discipline to truly mastering everything he was working on instead of skimming through it to get it good enough for Ed Sof's approval. And I'm not saying that that's what I was doing or anybody was doing, but a lot of times, especially in college, when you're preparing, it's almost like you're preparing for your lesson. In fact, that's what we said a lot. I'm preparing for my lesson. It's almost like you're trying to get these exercises down good enough so your teacher, and in my case it was either uh, uh, Rich McDonald, Mike Drake, or Ed Sof, would say, good job, let's go to the next lesson. Um, but that's not enough. It's not, a, it's, it's not enough to just get the approval for, okay, we can move on. Um, to true and, and and the other thing is once they say okay well, let's move on to the next lesson that's not the stamp of approval saying you have mastered the pages that I just heard you play that is saying okay the semester is almost over and we still have 10 more pages to go let's turn the page and and work on the next thing i mean who knows what the full psychology of it is but but the lesson that i kept getting from myself and of course in college you're so busy that you know everyone's practicing 3 to 5 hours a day trying to just crank it in. Um, but sometimes that, that's not enough, especially with the, when you're surrounded by a level of competition. Um, if, if someone's practicing more, you're trying to practice more and, and whatever. But, but the thing is, the staying, current, staying, staying present and staying disciplined and focused on mastering what you are working on 
before moving on. Mastering and being able to do it are two different things. And mastering, like if you're if you're looking at stick control, page, you know, the first exercise in stick control, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. Number two, left, right, left, right. Number three, right, right, left, left. Number four, left, left, right, right. How long does it take to master that? Well, on a practice pad, you can think about, am I hitting the pad consistently every time? Is my time good? Is the volume of every stick hit the same? Okay, great. Now, can I do the same thing around the drum set, for instance? So there's all kinds of levels of mastery. Just to say, yes, I can play right, left, right, left on a pad doesn't necessarily mean that you've mastered right, left, right, left. Can you play right, left, right, left between uh, a ride cymbal and a hi-hat and make it feel good and, and be consistent? Can you go right, left, right, left around the entire kit and make it consistent? I mean, there's lots of different levels to mastery on each thing. And whatever level you've decided to make it to on everything that you're working on, well, that's that's probably a little bit more than the level that you're going to be able to bring it out on on a gig. Because if you can do something pretty well in a practice room, the chances are that you're going to do it about 70% as well on a gig or a session. So, And the reason is, when you're in a practice room, you're in a controlled environment. You're in your own space. There's no one around. You're able to you're able to concentrate. You're able to practice, and you go, okay, this sounds good. I'm going to move on. And who knows about your practice time? Maybe you are completely um, preoccupied in your mind. Oh my gosh, I have to do this other thing, you know. So, are you really going to be able to focus on practice if you're thinking about something else? No, but you don't know that at the time, because if your mind's wandering. It doesn't know that you're not focusing. You're just going, yeah, this is good. Oh, yeah, this is fine. Oh, and then you, pretty soon you're looking at exercises going, oh, yeah, I'm sure I can do that. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And all of a sudden, you're not practicing anymore. You get to a gig, and you try to play something, and you go, oh, I remember this from the practice room. I'm going to do this. And it doesn't work. It's because you didn't really, really master it in the practice room. Mastery has a lot of different facets to it. And one of the things about mastery that I like to focus on, especially in my books, uh, the Drum Mantra books, Foundational Series especially, um, is the idea of repetition and muscle memory. So muscle memory only comes from lots of repetitions. You're trying to remap not only your muscles, but your brain is remapping So you're able to associate what something looks like, for instance, the music, what something sounds like, for instance, the rhythms, and what something feels like, for instance, the coordination. So those three things start to merge together when a disciplined, focused, intentive uh, practice routine is utilized. How do you do that? How do you convince yourself to have the discipline, to have the focused intention to practice something long enough that your your mind mapping, your muscle memory, and your coordination all become one? Because when that becomes one, then when you go to the gig or go to the session and it's time to do something that you are moved to do emotionally, it 
it's there. It's it comes out because your mind is attached to your, your like your mind knows what it wants to to hear. Your hands know how to do it, and your emotion says it's time to express this, and it's and it's all happening in simultaneously in real time. You're just moved to the experience. That's the goal. That's where true mastery is in my mind. So when you get to the level of understanding that and really being in it, the whole thing of like comparing yourself to somebody else doesn't even make sense anymore. It, it, it completely leaves your mind because you are so focused on training your mind and your body to do things that will allow you to express yourself, your creativity, not someone else's creativity, not someone else's groove or feel or idea, yours. The thing that makes music magical is the combination of, the combination of musicians that come together with their individual approaches. And when they merge together in a magical musical way, it creates art. And when it's done with integrity from all players, it, it becomes a, a magical expression of creativity that can move us emotionally. It can inspire us in so many different ways. It can inspire us to be a better person. It can inspire us to go practice. It can inspire us to, to write music. It, it could inspire us to, you know, call a friend and say, hey, man, I love you. Just want to let you know I appreciate you. Whatever it is. The, the transformative magic of music happens when everyone is coming from an authentic space. How do you get into that authentic space? Is You have integrity, focus, and discipline when you practice. You practice things for long enough that your mind is able to map it, your muscles are able to have muscle memory with it, and... And you understand what is happening rhythmically without having to um, figure it out on the page. You can see something on the page if you're reading music like in a recording session or something. But at least the muscle memory and the mental mapping, when those two things perfect, perfectly merge, you will know it because you will feel it. It will, it will become part of you so much that it becomes part of your emotional expression. Just like when you, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I don't even know how to, what, to, what to compare it to, but I think, that I'm, I think I'm getting my point across. So when you get deep enough into a practice regimen and you get deep enough into the authenticity of what you are doing, there's no, more, there's no longer room for self-judgment. There's no longer room for comparing yourselves to others. There's no longer room for, oh my gosh, what is what are people going to think? That's gone. That's gone. You have full confidence because you have done the work. One of the hardest things for young musicians is they want to be further along than they are. The path is is infinite. And I think I think Mike John I, I I can't remember but I think I heard Mike Johnston once say something about I'm not I'm not better than you 
I've just been playing longer. It had something to do with like, there is no better than there is. Everyone is at their own point in their evolution. So it comes down to, it doesn't come down to better than and, and that person's better than this person. None of that. That is crazy talk. It comes down to this person is authentically expressing themselves. And you can authentically express yourselves. I mean, if you listen to, if you listen to Kind of Blue and then you listen to, I don't know, something like Alan Holdsworth, those two things of music are completely different. And the untrained mind could say, oh, the Holdsworth guys are way better than the Miles Davis guys. It's like, that doesn't even make any sense. That's crazy. The Holdsworth guys are, you know, those guys are playing the music that is written in a way that they are expressing themselves within the parameters of of the music that was composed. The guys on, on the Miles Davis album are doing the same thing. They are they are authentically committing their emotion to create a vibe. And it's okay. It's okay to play quarter notes on the ride cymbal. You don't have to play gospel chops if it's not required. And many things don't require it. So if you're comparing yourself because you can't play gospel chops and it's freaking you out, well, guess what? Is that authentically you? If it's authentically you, then you would be in a world that you're surrounded by the gospel chop thing. And in that case, it is part of your world. But if you're looking at it from outside and saying, oh man, I need to be a more well-rounded musician. Um, I don't know anything about the gospel chop scene. I don't even go to, I don't even know about the the churches where that stuff comes from or any of that, but I sure do need to have those kinds of chops. Well, are you really being authentic with yourself? Because you probably aren't. So, wow, I don't, I, I, this is a crazy talk. I don't, I didn't expect it to go any of these places, but hopefully, um, hopefully you're inspired to simplify your mind, to become focused and disciplined on what you practice and to be an authentic person when you are playing gigs, when you're playing sessions, to be real, keep it real. You were hired to do something because of who you are. And so just be that. Just trust that that's what it is. And if you aren't quite to the point yet in your musical career where you're actually playing gigs or sessions, perfect. Be in the incubator. Be in the practice room. Do your homework. Don't get enamored by videos you see and and think that you're going to become the next, you know, J.P. Bouvet or or Mike Johnson or Carter McLean. Be yourself. Every one of those guys is themselves. That's what makes this beautiful. Steve Pruitt, uh, Steve Lyman, two amazing jazz drummers, completely different players, both ridiculous. There's so many great players out there. Be inspired by them, but don't try to be them. Okay? Be yourself. It it all comes together when you can authentically know who you are and to authentically be comfortable and good with your own sense of identity. And then eventually it will come out. It will pop out. I mean, if you're taking, if you're looking, if Jim Keltner put a video on Instagram 
a lot of people wouldn't even understand it because there's too much space. If Jay Bellarose put something on Instagram, you'd probably be like, well, what's this? This isn't, this isn't fancy. <laughs> I think people are so concerned with fancy, they forget about the essence of the spirit of music, the emotional impact that you can have by playing beat four on the floor tom as your drum fill, right? It doesn't have to be crazy. It can be if that's the way you live and that's the way you think. But just, again, it comes back to being authentic. All right. I think I've I've blabbed enough, um, so I'm going to say goodbye. I hope this helps. And please continue to write. If you want me to talk about something, I'm happy to. You can reach me on Instagram at Rich Stitzel Music. You can reach me at Facebook, Rich Stitzel Music. I'm on Twitter as Rich Stitzel. And also Drum Mantra for all those things as well. And you could also contact me through richstitzelmusic.com, my website. Uh, have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Drum Mantra Podcast. Your time and attention is much appreciated. I would love it if you went to the iTunes store and left a rating. And please share this with anybody that you think would like to go deeper with their practice. Take care.